Section 12 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Melitzia. The complete collection of liturgical chants, upon which Rome finally set her approval, has been called for ages the Antiphonarium Romanum, and this, as Rome became the head of the organization of the church, was adopted by all other branches in Western Europe as the Bible, so to speak, of ecclesiastical song. It was compiled from four collections of which the Ambrosian was one, the others being the Gregorian, the Gallican, and the Mozarabian, or Spanish. The principal manuscripts in these collections have been reproduced in facsimile by the Benedictine monks of Salem in their invaluable Paleographie Musicale, 1889 et sequentia. To quote from the introduction to this magnificent series, the Gregorian, Ambrosian, Mozarabian, and the little which remains to us of the Gallican dialects seem in fact to have one common source, to have been derived from the same musical language, the chant of the Latin church in its cradle. That is at least the opinion to which we have been brought by the examination of the manuscripts in the libraries of our own monasteries, and of those which we have been able to consult elsewhere. Concerning the similarities, we can say modes and rhythms are the same in the four varieties of chant. The melodic forms present the same general character. Moreover, in these diverse musical dialects, certain melodic types or airs constantly recur, which are always perfectly recognisable, in spite of the differences resulting from the peculiarities of style or character proper to each of them. Among the Ambrosian and Gregorian, these mutual borrowings, these common heritages, are especially frequent. The history of these collections is extremely obscure. No manuscripts are extant of earlier date than the 12th century. As to who actually compiled the Antiphonarium Romanum, a long-standing and generally accepted tradition ascribed it to St. Gregory the Great, died 604, but the validity of the tradition has been attacked by a number of reputable and authoritative modern historians, conspicuous among whom is Gevert. Without entering into the merits of the controversy, we shall briefly indicate the earliest sources of information on liturgical collections, following Gevert on the Gregorian tradition, not in parti pri, but because the tradition has been so long and so strongly entrenched that it is more in need of examination than of support. The first mention of a collection of chants occurs about the year 760, when Pope Paul I sent to King Pepin an antiphonal and a responsal. In the time of Charlemagne there existed a missal and breviary called Gregorian, as we gather from a letter addressed to the Emperor by Pope Hadrian. This is the earliest mention we find of the Gregorian tradition, and it is not very enlightening. The first writer to give us much information about the liturgy is Amalarius, who was deacon of Metz under Louis the Pious. Aurelian of Réaumé, circa 859, classes the melodies according to the order of the eight ecclesiastical modes, and Regino, abbe of Prum, toward the end of the same century, gives us in his Tonarius an extended catalogue of anthems and responses, accompanied by a pneumatic notation. 
we find again a hazy reference to Gregory by Wallafried Strabo, under Louis the Debonair, and it is only when we come to the life of St. Gregory, written by John the Deacon about 882, that we find an explicit and unequivocal ascription of the existing collection of liturgical chants to that pope. The scarcity of references to the Gregorian tradition among writers prior to John the Deacon is curious. Isidore of Seville and the Venerable Bede, both of whom occupied themselves much with the liturgy, are silent on the point. So is the Liber Pontificalis. Gregory's own writings are singularly lacking in references to music. His only utterance on the subject that has been preserved to us is the decree of the Synod of 595, in which he condemns the tendency of the priests to be more preoccupied with the effect of their voices than with the import of what they sing, and orders that they confine themselves thenceforth by reciting the gospel in the celebration of the mass and leave the singing to subdeacons and clerics of inferior grade. This would not of itself imply any great devotion on Gregory's part to liturgical music, though the necessity of training clerics of inferior grade to sing the services might have suggested the founding of the Scola Cantorum, which is traditionally ascribed to him. It is pointed out by Gavet that the Antiphonarius Gregorianus does not fit the ecclesiastical calendar of the time of St. Gregory, but belongs to the liturgical usage of Rome about the year 750. Duchesne credits the editing of the Gregorian Missal to Pope Hadrian during the first years of Charlemagne's reign. The name Gregorian may have reference to Gregory II, 715 to 731, or more probably to Gregory III. It is a fact that until the end of the 7th or the beginning of the 8th century, the churches did not open on Friday, and it was not allowed to celebrate Mass on that day, because it coincided with the pagan feast of Jupiter, Jovis Dies. Even as late as the end of the 6th century, the celebration of this festival was so common that it was solemnly condemned by the Council of Narbonne, 589. By the 8th century, however, the last remains of paganism had so completely disappeared that the prohibition of Friday services was removed by Pope Gregory II, who ordained the celebration of the sacred rites on the Fridays of Lent. Now the Gregorian Antiphonary contains a Mass for each Friday in Lent, while there is none in the Galatian Missal of the 7th century. If the Mass is not a later interpolation, then the Gregorian Antiphonary certainly could not have been compiled before the time of Gregory II. Many historical considerations lead Gewert to credit the completion and final formulation of liturgical chant to the Hellenic popes of the 7th and 8th centuries. Following the end of the Gothic kingdom and with the dominance of the Byzantine emperors begins the second period of church music in the West a period which shows every sign of the oriental influence, so powerful at Rome under the rule of the exarchs of Ravenna. This influence is apparent not only in the more ornate form of the music, but in the frequent use of the Greek language, and in the importation of feasts foreign to the Roman rite. In the 7th century, four of the most ancient feasts of the Virgin, the Purification, Annunciation, Assumption, and Nativity, were brought from the Orient, and from the same epoch dates the adoption at Rome of the feast called the Exaltation of the Cross, which originated in the Oriental Church.
by the seventh century says Gavert, we are in the presence of an advanced art conscious of its principles with rules and formulas for each class of composition skilled interpreters have been developed by the scola cantorum and these together with the syrian monks who fled to italy after the mussulman conquest were the real authors of the responses of the nocturnal office and the true chants of the mass the popes of the seventh century most of whom were themselves versed in the cantalena romana were particularly solicitous about the beauty and order of the liturgy to the eleven popes of hellenic origin who held the chair of saint peter between 678 and 752 is probably due the final development and perfection of liturgical forms chief among them was agathon 678 to 681 who seems to have regulated or fixed definitely the texts of what in the eighth century was called the responsal or actual antiphonary containing the complete repertory of the office of the hours for the entire year the venerable bede says that agathon sent the leader of the basilica singers to england to organize that part of the ecclesiastical service according to the usage of rome leo the second we learn from the papal chronicles was very learned in that sacred chant as was also sergius the second the latter our authority thinks inspired the last work on the roman gradual and was the first to initiate the roman singers in the doctrine of the four double ecclesiastical modes which later writers following the lead of boethius identified with the eight tonal steps of aristoxenus falsely attributed to ptolemy the editing of that part of the liber antiphonarius which has become our gradual was probably due to the syrian pope gregory the third who was very active in the promotion of liturgical music the antiphonarium romanum or complete collection of liturgical chants of the church consisting of several hundred pieces is divided into two distinct parts the antiphonarium proper and the gradual the former contains the offices of the canonical hours cursus ecclesiasticus consisting of the responses anthems and hymns reiterated day and night by religious communities the custom of reciting the office began among the monastic orders of the orient about the fourth century apparently it had its genesis in antioch about three hundred fifty and soon spread to the other greek churches the pilgrim in sylvia speaks of hearing the vigils and other hours in the church of jerusalem three hundred eighty six and bishop cassian of alton found the hour of prime introduced at bethlehem in three hundred ninety from alexandria and constantinople the office passed to milan and rome in the sixth century it was organized somewhat as it is today cassiodorus circa 540 names seven synaxes or daily reunions and a similar number is mentioned in the rules of saint benedict about the same time the gradual consists of the services of the mass and contains the anthems responses and hymns proper to these services there are a few fixed pieces such as the kyrie gloria sanctus annus dei and credo constituting what is known as the ordinary of the mass and besides these there are a large number which vary according to the day and the name of the saint whose feast is celebrated
the chants belonging to the introit and communion are antiphonal while those of the gradual alleluia tractus and offertory are responsorial the gloria in excelsis is a sort of hymn besides the hymns of the ambrosian cycle already spoken of the latin church adopted many oriental hymns of the seventh and eighth centuries fourteen hymns of great age are still included in the gradual among them the pangelingua attributed to fortunatus the vexilla regis and the veni creato spiritus attributed to charlemagne the hymns anthems and responses in the general repertory of church songs appear under two distinct forms simple melodies and ornate melodies the former which are more or less syllabic are used for all the anthems in the cursus ecclesiasticus and the responses belonging to that part of it which forms the office of the day the ornate style is used for the anthems and responses of the mass and for the office of the night the responses of the gradual tractus and alleluia are musically the most interesting of the liturgical chants they are not so much an integral part of the sacrifice of the mass as they are a sort of vocal intermezzo for solo and chorus allowing the display of considerable art both in technique and expression a peculiar form of composition which first appears in the liturgy after the ninth century is the sequence or prosa apparently this originated in the east and grew out of the custom of writing words as mnemonics under the syllables of the word alleluia footnote the alleluia is not really a word but a sort of shrilling effect of great antiquity among the hebrews and other people of the orient it was produced by choruses of women in triumphal processions and other joyous celebrations and seems to have been about halfway between a song and a cheer the early christians used it in songs of joy and praise and perhaps sang it to take the place of the instrumental prelude of the psalms End of footnote. Gradually it became of such importance that it was detached from the Alleluia and made an independent form. The first examples of the sequence which appear in the Latin church are furnished by Notker Babulus, 830-1912, who was responsible for developing it to the proportions of an independent form. Indeed, he has been called its inventor. An ancient Irish authority, quoted in the Book of Lismore, says, Notker abbot of st gulls invented sequences and alleluia after them in the form in which they are among the most famous followers of notka in the composition of sequences may be mentioned tutillo or tuatel died nine hundred fifteen an irish monk of st gulls whippo and adam de saint victor the council of trent suppressed all sequences except five which are still used by the church. These are the Victimae Pascali Laudes of Whippo, the Lauda Sion Salvatorem of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Dies Irae of Thomas de Celano, the Stabat Mater of Jacques de Benedictis, and the Veni Sancte Spiritus. Another peculiar form, practically the antithesis of the sequence in its origin, is the trope which consists of the dilation of the musical or the literary text by the interjection of complementary phrases. This, at least at first, 
was probably done to avoid monotony. For instance, instead of singing Kyrie eleison nine times in succession, it was sung as follows. Kyrie, cunctipotens genito deus omnia creato eleison, fons et origio boni pie luxque perennis eleison. Kyrie salvecet pietas tua nos bonne recto eleison, etc. All parts of the Mass, from the introit to the communion, have been decorated with tropes. There has been compiled a list of 78 tropes for the Kyrie alone. Like the sequence, the trope developed from an accessory function to an independent form which at one time was practiced with much assiduity. Whether the musical theory of the ecclesiastical chants prior to the 5th century, apart from the Ambrosian hymns, was influenced more by Roman or Oriental traditions is a moot point. The question, however, is not vital, as the real founder of the church system of modes, the Pythagorean philosopher Boethius, 5th century, was professedly an imitator of the Greek theorists. Boethius speaks of the ancients with something like veneration, and takes pride in writing like a Greek, after the fashion of Plato, Aristotle, Aristoxenus, Nicomachus, Philolaus, and Ptolemy. He is a mathematician rather than a musician. He congratulates Ptolemy on having ignored the testimony of the ear and condemns the practice of music as interfering with the just and logical consideration of theory. Cassiodorus and Isidore of Seville speak in somewhat the same fashion. Boethius is the authority for a long line of church musicians, including Huckbald, Guido, Engelbert, Jean de Marie, Adam de Fulda, and Alcuin. The mathematical view of music fathered by him gained such prevalence that in the curriculum of medieval universities, music was placed among the mathematical sciences. We cannot do more here than briefly indicate the tone system used in the church after the liturgy had been definitely formulated, without going into the question of its earlier evolution. The system of modes was professedly founded on the tetrachordal species of the Greeks, but with an obvious misunderstanding of the Greek system. At first, only four forms were recognised, namely the so-called authentic modes of St. Ambrose. According to tradition, St. Gregory added to these four plagal. At any rate, before the 11th century, there were eight accepted church modes four authentic modes and four plagal, or derived modes. Later theorists taught the existence of 14 different scales. Two of these were rejected as impure, the other 12 remained in use for centuries and were known by the names of their Greek prototypes, but these names too were misapplied, as will be seen from the following table, where the octave D to D corresponding to the Phrygian species of the Greeks is named Dorian, and vice versa, the octave F to F, Greek Mixolydian, has become the Lydian, and so forth. The difference between authentic and plagal modes was chiefly one of range and emphasis. For example, in every mode, two tones were considered, and were, as a matter of fact, of predominant importance. The final, or note on which the piece ended, somewhat analogous to our tonic or keynote, and the dominant, the note most frequently touched in the course of the melody, the centre of gravity, so to speak, about which the melody moved. 
In the authentic modes, the melody never sank below the final, except in cadence, where it might take the note immediately below the final and rise by one step to the close. And the dominant was, like our dominant, in the middle of the scale. In the plagal modes, on the other hand, the melody wandered freely as low as a fourth below the final, which thus was near the middle of the melodic range. And the dominant was a third below the dominant of the corresponding authentic mode. Whenever the dominant fell on B, C was substituted, and in the rejected Locrian, G was substituted for F. Each authentic mode had its related plagal. The final of the ecclesiastical Dorian mode was D. Footnote. Here should be noted one of the ways in which the Christian theorists misapplied the system of the Greeks. In chapter 4, we have seen that the Greeks did not consider pitch as in any way related to the character or ethos of the modes. This ethos was determined solely by the arrangement of the steps in the scale. The Christian theorists, on the other hand, though they still recognized the variety of character obtained by varying the distribution of steps in the scale, evidently allotted to the different modes a different final or pitch, and thus pitch came to influence the character of the modes. The modes might, however, still be transposed and sung at any pitch. End of footnote. The range of a melody written in this mode was limited to notes which may be represented on the pianoforte by the white keys between D and D, including the two Ds and, for the cadence, the C below the lower. The melody would centre about A and come to an end on D. The related plagal mode, called the Hypodorian, had the same final D. But the range of a melody in this mode was from the A below to the A above the final, centering about the dominant F. The so-called relaxed modes, which are frequently met with, varied likewise from the authentic modes in range, which in such modes might be extended to a third below the final. The dominant remained the same, and the slight extension of range hardly altered the ethos or character of the authentic mode from which it thus technically varied. The table in the text demonstrates the fourteen authentic and plagal modes, including the two which were rejected. The authentic modes are as follows. Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, Aeolian, Locrian, which was rejected, and Ionian. The plagal modes are thus. Hypodorian, Hypophrygian, Hypolydian, Hypomixolydian, Hypoaeolian, Hypolocrian, which was rejected, and Hypoionian. The modes were, in as far as possible, strictly adhered to, but the occurrence of certain intervals difficult to sing and not wholly pleasant to the ear, notably the augmented fourth or tritone from F to B, led to modifications, or, as we should say, chromatic alterations. Footnote. This dreaded interval, the tritone, was called by churchmen diabolus in musica, and as such studiously avoided. End of footnote. B-flat, for instance, was substituted for B whenever the interval from F to B occurred, and later in the development of part-singing, many other alterations were found necessary. Marks indicating such alterations were seldom written in the score, and singers were specially trained to alter intervals at sight, according to the elaborate rules of the practice, called musica ficta, 
or false music. We have already adverted to the gradual decline in the use of the Greek language at Rome, and the incidental passing from the minds and the memories of men of the alphabetical system of notation which had been inherited from the Greeks. It is not quite clear, however, how the Oriental Church, which used Greek until a comparatively late period, and even introduced that language into the liturgy of the Latin Church, could have absolutely ignored the Greek system of notation. Yet such appears to be the case. As far as we can discover, the early chants of the Church, both in the East and in the West, were handed down viva voce, and not until about the 8th century do we find traces of any attempt to devise a system of graphic aids to musical memory. This system, as we first find it, was of a most elementary sort, and consisted merely of a few strokes and dashes placed above the text of the song, and serving apparently no other purpose than to indicate in a general way the rising and falling inflections of the melody. These signs are known as neumes, and from them gradually developed our modern system of notation. The origin of the neumes is quite obscure. It would appear that at first they consisted merely of the acute and grave accents borrowed from the Byzantine grammarians, and designed to indicate the occurrence of a rising and falling inflection respectively. To them were gradually added dashes, strokes, curves and hooks in various combinations, which in time became a fairly complete and precise system of musical writing. Their evolution into the square and diamond-shaped Gothic notation of the Middle Ages can be followed with sufficient clearness. The text displays an example specimen of notation in neumes from the 10th and 11th century. Latin text is shown with strokes and dashes of different lengths above the words. These signs, though representing definite turns and embellishments in the melody, gave no exact indication of pitch. The first sign of anything approaching a staff occurs in the 10th century, when one or two lines were drawn across the page to mark the place of certain tones or pitches. The first line was used for the tone F, and the second for the tone C. Other lines were later added for the other tones, and each line was marked with the letter of the tone to which it was assigned. Though all letters of the scale were used in this fashion, F, C, and G were the ones most commonly employed, and from the Gothic characters for these were developed our modern clef signs, as may be seen from the following illustration. The image shows the gradual evolution of the three musical clefs. A capital F evolves into the bass clef, a C evolves into the alto clef, and a capital G evolves into the treble clef. A system of letter notation seems to have grown up contemporaneously with the pneumatic system. Its invention has been ascribed to Gregory the Great and to Boethius without much authority in either case. The first instances of its practical use are found in the writings of Notgebalbulus and Hookbald. Originally 15 letters were used to designate the tones of two octaves. This number was afterward reduced to seven, repeated in successive octaves. The letters ran from A to G, but none of them had a definite tone meaning, as they have with us. A was merely the tone taken as a starting point, and the series was always counted upward from it. In the system, as it was finally completed, 
the lowest G was added and called gamma to distinguish it from the G in the regular series. It is of interest to note here that the introduction of B flat necessitated the use of two differently shaped Bs. The B durum was angular and the B mol was rounded. From the former was derived our natural sign and from the latter our flat sign. Our sharp is merely a variation of the natural. The system of letter notation was originally devised chiefly for instruments, particularly the organ, though its use gradually became universal. It belongs, however, more properly to a period later than the one we have been discussing. One other item may justly find a place in this chapter, namely the early history of the organ. The instrument has virtually since the beginning of our era been associated with the church, and was already a factor in the service during the plainsong period. We shall presently see how one of the earliest forms of polyphony, of music that was not merely plain chant, received its name from the instrument. The organ is of ancient origin, according to Riemann, its ancestors are the bagpipe and the pan's pipe. Already in the 2nd century BC there existed a true organ, in which air pressure was generated by pumps, bellows, and compressed by means of water pressure and the manipulation of a keyboard. The invention of this so-called water organ, organum hydraulicum, hydraulic organ, was ascribed to Ctesibios, 170 BC, by his pupil Hieron of Alexandria, whose writings have come down to us. Water was, it seems, not a necessary accessory to this instrument, and organs were soon after constructed without the hydraulic principle in Greece and Italy. The text shows an image labelled the organ in the Middle Ages, with three depictions of organs, one, a pneumatic organ, 4th century, two, the famous Winchester organ, 951 AD, and three, a German organ of the 11th century. The instrument was known in the Occident long before King Pepin received one as a present from Emperor Constantine Copronymos in 757 AD. A Greek description of an organ belonging to Julian the Apostate, 4th century, and others mentioned by Cassiodorus and St. Augustine furnish valuable details. These instruments usually consisted of from 8 to 15 pipes, 1 to 2 octaves of the diatonic scale which were constructed in the same manner as the flue pipes of modern organs. Throughout the ninth century, organs were assiduously manufactured by monks, especially in France and Germany, and their compass was made to coincide with the middle range of the human voice, middle C to the C above, so as to be used in connection with vocal instruction. The names of the tones were inscribed on the keys, which were small wooden plates in vertical position. The player was obliged to pull this shutter away to allow the wind to enter the pipes, which would sound continuously till shut. By 980, there existed organs of considerable size, such as the famous one at Winchester, consisting of 400 pipes and two keyboards, requiring two players. A special form of notation, known as tablature, grew up for organ playing, which coincides in general with our modern staff notation. The above will, we believe, suffice to give a clear account of the musical activities of the period which we have called the Age of Plainsong. 
Among music-loving people in general, there is a lack of interest in plain song, due partly to religious reasons, but chiefly born of a tendency to regard it as a dry and spiritless formula, an insipid sort of recitative designed to lend solemnity to devotional exercises. Complete lack of sympathy and imagination could alone excuse such an impression in the minds of those who have ever had the opportunity of hearing it sung in a sincere and reverent spirit. Unlike the pedantic mathematical art that music came to be in the Middle Ages, plain song was preeminently a form of emotional expression. Furthermore, it was the expression of emotions most poignant and profound. It came from the hearts of men who were conscious actors in a gigantic drama. The inexpressible tortures of eternal fire, the ecstatic wonders of a golden heaven, the ineffable mystery of the Godhead, the awful panoply of the judgment, the wrath and agony of a wronged and insulted deity who yet offered himself as a bloody holocaust for the sins of men. All the esoteric spiritual symbols of Christianity had for these early believers a real and literal significance. To them was vouchsafed the simple faith, the naive wonder of childhood. Their souls were possessed with a great awe, with an intense longing, with profound humility and passionate remorse, with fiery zeal and ardent love, with the joyous ecstasy of anticipated salvation and the nameless horror of ever-threatening damnation. All this wealth of deep and keen emotion is conveyed to us in the songs of the early church with the direct simplicity of Greek drama. No one listening to the mournful strains of the Dies Irae could escape the vague awe, the blood-congealing sense of that tremendous drama set for the day of wrath, that awful day when heaven and earth shall pass away. Nor could anyone hear the serene melody of the Veni Sancte Spiritus without feeling some suggestion of the ineffable peace that follows the descent of the spirit paraclete. Understanding and sympathy, difficult perhaps for a scientific and rationalistic age, are essential to the appreciation of these poets of the ecstatic vision. But for anyone who can bring imagination and sensibility to the study of plain song, the results of the task will prove well worth the labour. End of section 12